Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It is Tuesday, March 29th, live from my apartment and his attic. This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. I am DJ Nate, filling in for the one and only Dr. T. Today on the program, we have Leroy Gordon and Jim Coogan. And now, your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Will versus Chris Tuesday, and here's why. <laughs> I think you all know why. Good Lord. I know it's a political podcast, ladies and gentlemen, and I spend my weekends obsessing over all the intricacies of politics, national politics, state politics, local politics, international politics. I'm reading the New York Times and the Washington Post updates on Ukraine, uh, the war in Ukraine, everything. But for a little break, I, t- <laughs> I took a little break. <laughs> <laughs> I took a little break. To watch the Oscars every year I watch. I'm probably the only person, my wife and I are the only people in America who still watch the Oscars live. We like we look forward to it. It's like a mini Super Bowl for us because we love movies. I've been watching Oscars since, since, ladies and gentlemen, about 30 years before today's guest, who I'm looking at right now, was born. Before this guy was born, I've been watching Oscars, and I've never... Ever. And I've seen a lot at Oscars. I've seen a naked man run on the stage. Yes, it's true. I saw Marlon Brandon not show up and allow a Native American woman to accept his Oscar. I've seen all kinds of meltdowns and breakdowns in acceptance speech. But slap somebody? Come on stage and smack someone? And I got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, before I go in front, I got to laugh. The Chicago Sun-Times and the Tribune, bless them. Bless their little newspaper hearts. I got to love them, man. I'm going to show my guests the headlines. This is the paper today. Okay. So this is how old people get their news, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this thing happened on Sunday night, and it's the front page news in today's beloved, my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times. And I could just, I'm like old people all around Chicago going, hey, what is, what, Chris Rock got slapped? <laughs> I, come on, bright one. I'm no better, man. All right, I'm going to introduce my uh, distinguished guest who I reached out to, and um, I know uh, he's got to head out the door in a little while, so I appreciate you taking the time. The great Leroy Gordon. Uh, welcome back, Cotter, to my humble little podcast. I appreciate you coming back. And uh, Leroy Gordon, I, I reached out to Leroy uh, because, well, number one, he was a professional wrestler. And if just anybody can like, understand the dynamic of like machoism gone too far, it's a professional wrestler. Uh, and, and, uh, but he, uh, Leroy Gordon, also known as Roy Flash Gordon, that's his wrestling name. Uh, he's a mindset coach who helps people develop their skills to pursue their life's calling. And I check, uh, urge everybody to check out the interview I did earlier with Leroy, 
uh, where we talked about uh, being positive and uh, forceful and manifesting what we want in the world, et cetera, and so forth, getting in shape. I teased him about his football career, where I was there at the start. So I check everybody. I urge everybody to uh, listen to him. We talked a lot about his wrestling. Uh, Leroy, let's let's take and part of the reason I reached out to you is I saw your Instagram post, which I found very enlightening. Uh, and you confessed your great love and appreciation for Will Smith. Um, so I saw this live, as I said. I just was utter disbelief. First, I thought it was a gag. I thought, oh, they were in on it, you know, and oh, this honey, you don't understand. I'm explaining to my wife, total mansplaining. You don't understand how comedy works. This is, this is. <laughs> and then Leroy, all of a sudden, Will Smith's cussing him out, and Chris Rock could just look at his face and see that it was, it was, he was really upset and hurt. And uh, so you saw it after the fact because you weren't watching the Oscars. You're like, the great majority of Americans weren't watching the Oscars. So what was your, what was your initial reaction? Uh, Leroy, uh, when you saw Will Smith smack Chris rock, I, 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 I was like, I first reaction was, well, there must've been a good reason for it. You know, <laughs> that was my first thing. This is before I went to see like the rest of it and get the rest of the context. Um, uh, but, uh, there's, Literally no excuse, especially uh, as 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 the picture became clearer that it sounds like he walked onto stage. Like he wasn't already there. He got up, went there, and just let him have it. And I at that blew my mind. I'm like, wow, yeah, really go out of your way to go and you know try to not not look like a uh b or whatever i don't know if i this is pg podcast or whatever but no, you can um, you can swear at a podcast sweet not look like a bitch um <laughs> like which is what's going through his mind you know um and i i was i was absolutely floored absolutely floored um but going back to my love of will smith i was in total support of him and his experience and what he was going through and uh, uh, I don't know, just I, I'm fresh off listening to his book, which I thought was fantastic. I haven't stopped talking about it. And just, I don't know, I got a little bit more context, possibly on the inside workings of his brain, um, you know, through learning on that book and, and what that moment might have meant to him, uh, taking all things into context and what he's gone through in life. And even in the last year or whatever it was with the rest of the stories about him and Jada. Um, so definitely a fascinating case with with a, a lot of twists and turns uh, that the people who are reacting to it, I don't think have enough context to truly be able to judge him uh, or the, the situation really. All right. Now let's, uh, let's just take a moment uh, before we get into the details of the two individuals at play and break out some of the things you've already said. Like you thought he had a good reason for it, which kind of blew my mind. I'm trying to think what possible good reason could he, what possible good reason could exist in the universe to justify doing that? But let's just pause on all that and just reflect on wrestling. And Leroy, your career, you spent several years as a wrestler, you know, pro pro wrestling, ladies and gentlemen. So you know how the game is set up. And I've seen stuff like this happen so many times in wrestling. Guys out of nowhere come in the ring and slap someone or hit him over the head with a chair. You know, remember Donald Trump? He The, the haircutting thing where he cut uh, old boy's hair. I can't remember his name. So I uh, can't believe I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, thank you. God damn, I'm slipping. Uh, so Leroy, as a wrestler, 
Could you, did you have a, like a sense that you'd seen this before, an appreciation of the showmanship of it? Did you, even, was there a part of you as a wrestler going, Hey, this is, this is pretty good. It's going to sell some tickets. Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I, I, my first thing was like, oh, it's uh, in wrestling. We say it's a work. Uh, if it's if it's fake, you say it's a work. And I was like, oh, this is totally a work. Um, and like technique wise, to support that belief, which I don't know, I don't care what the truth is, um, and I, I'm going to assume it's real or whatever. Uh, but technique wise, it looks like a work. Like just the way he, he threw the slap uh, even looked like, oh, is that really hitting him? And just looks funny and like he's never thrown one before, which, which I know he has. Like he had to train professionally in Ali to learn how to hit someone. Uh, so that definitely stood out big time for me. Um, and uh, as far as like a political or, uh, you know, uh, rather a publicity stunt, um, I don't know what either of them has to gain other than I feel like both of them were where they wanted to be, and now they are on the front page of every fucking thing. So, uh, does it sell some tickets? Absolutely. Are people talking about them more than they were that <laughs> before that fateful moment? Absolutely. Um, def- definitely uh, some good fodder for ticket sales. I'll tell you this: uh, in terms of ticket sales, Chris Rock, I saw this uh, pop up. Uh, his tick, he's doing a tour with uh, Kevin Hart, coincidentally. Uh, and that you can't get those tickets anymore. They, they're out the door, up the, you know what I mean? They sold out, they're triple the price. Uh, all right, let's talk about slap versus punch for a moment. And uh, I saw Shannon Sharp going on off about this. He went off on this, about the difference between a slap and a punch. And a slap is more humiliating than a punch. And Leroy, you've thrown slaps, you've thrown punches, you've taken slaps, you've taken punches. Uh, please uh, give a discourse, if you will, on the difference between a slap and a punch. Go ahead. Absolutely. Um, I would 100% agree uh, with that. A slap would be more humiliating. It's more of a, uh, I'm going to discipline you. I, I, I love my mom, but uh, she was not the best mom. But when it was like, I'm going to discipline you, it was a slap. And uh, I definitely feel that. And I feel like man to man, you know, if you're going off the, the typical what, what manhood is thing, uh, if you want to assert your power over someone in a way that's not going to get you in as much trouble <laughs> or you, you get arrested or whatever, you're going to slap them instead of uh, punching them. That, that's, that's, that's how I see it. Um, and I, I, I can't imagine Will was up there calculating what he was going to go do. But uh, I, I, I know if his fist was closed with the power that it looked like he might have had that Chris Rock would have been knocked on his ass. And that's a, uh, that's a whole different like case. That's a whole different like load of embarrassment for everybody. I, I feel like if you went up and punched somebody, you, I don't know, they're probably going to get arrested you right then and there, you know? Um, very, very interesting. And then, and then another thing about like the way it looked, it looked like partway through Will was kind of like, am I doing this? You know, like like there was some some pull at the end. Like, was it meant to be a slap from in the first place? And partway through, was he like, "Oh, I already want this back," but I'm I'm I'm, I'm already there. I'm fully committed. Um, yeah, a lot of interesting dynamics. But the if if you're thinking that he was thinking about slapping him from the get go, absolutely to 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 toss in a different layer of humiliation, a different layer of punishment, discipline, etc. 
Uh, and uh, so I had a conversation with a, with a friend, a dear friend of mine who, who remained anonymous because he, he would probably be embarrassed because uh, he came to see the error of his ways. But he eventually, he's a tough guy, macho guy. And he said, man, uh, if, if, if Will Smith had slapped me like that, I'd have kicked his ass and uh, Chris Rock punked out. Okay. And I said, how can you say that? It tremendous restraint. I and mean, this is me speaking. Unbelievable restraint at Chris Rock's part. I give him a lot. I got to give him a lot of props for just having the capacity, uh, Leroy, to, to get slapped in the face in front of everybody, which is humiliation, not turn, not going after him. And, and by the way, still getting off the presentation of the documentary award. That unbelievable presence of mind. I got to, that's like Tom Brady, like mental strength, Michael Jeffrey Jordan in the last seconds, ignoring it all. You know what I mean? That's strength in my mind. That's how I saw it. Um, how did you see, uh, uh, Chris Rock's response? Did you agree with my friend that he should have manned it up and smacked him back? Go ahead. Oh, oh, I, I don't want to like talk <laughs> shit about your friend, but like that, that, that belief is everything that's wrong with, uh, what we're taught manhood is. Uh, I think if you're talking about who's the bigger man in the situation, absolutely. Chris Rock was the bigger man in the situation, um, in a, a situation where, and I, it, it, there is, you got to make it about race a little bit too. Um, you know, you see two black men, uh, fucking brawling it out on the world stage. Like they're all dressed in nice suits and all that. And this is this big professional thing, a historical, uh, like event, like it's gone on for however many years, however long Ben's been alive and many years <laughs> before then, you know what I mean? Like that, what a terrible look, what an absolute terrible look. And I'm not sure Chris Rock was processing exactly what it would have meant for him to respond in a physical way to that. Um, you know, if Will Smith was legit trying to fight him as opposed to just throwing a punch, that's one thing as, and defending yourself is one thing, but kind of taking, seeing a, a, a brother who's clearly something's going on with him and trying to turn that into a situation to, to fight, um, that, that's, that's not being a big man. That's not being a big man at all. Chris was amazingly professional and I, I think amazingly a masculine practice of uh, all right, something just came that that wanted to knock me off course, and I got to get back on course and keep this thing rolling. Uh, I, I, I appreciate that, Chris Rock. <laughs> if you talked about who won, Chris Rock certainly won the night there, and it has nothing to do with the physical aspects of it. That was really well put, and uh, you raised uh, race. I was going to raise it anyway. Let's get at it. Uh, it hurt me. You, I, I it's even hard to articulate this uh, because I've, how do I put this, Leroy? I've grown up around white people. I know how they talk. And when, when black people aren't around and it's like, there you go. There you go. You can't, you can't bring these bleeps anywhere. Okay. I know. And it's not fair that all black people have to pay a price for how, Will Smith acted just like it's not fair that all black people have to pay a price for any story you see in the newspaper about crime or what have you. But you know, Leroy, you've grown up in this country, how it works in this country. And that's how it's, I'm like, oh, no, oh, no, 
no, please, Will Smith, you didn't just do that. You know what I'm saying? I could see all the political ramifications of how Trump and MAGA were going to turn this into a, you know, like crime is in the streets type thing. And we got to be tougher and throw more people in jail. I could see it all, Leroy. You know what I mean? That's how my brain processes it. And it's like, it's just not freaking fair, but that's the way it is in this country. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I, I, you, you just took me back. My first real, my first thought really when I saw it was fuck, not in front of all these white people. That was my real fucking thought. <laughs> that was my real fucking thought. You know, it's like, you know, there's a, I, I truly believe the black community has come so far in, you know, just trying to like do our fucking thing and not try to prove ourselves to anyone. And with something like the Oscars, I don't remember when the the first black person hosted, um, but I feel like that's still fairly recent, right? Like compared to the existence of it, you know what I mean? And just like, fuck, like black host and a black man striking the black host uh, in this inability to control his emotions about something. I, 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 I guess that was my real first reaction, like an embarrassment sort of thing. Yeah. By the way, just to clarification, uh, Chris Rock has hosted the Oscars, but last night he was there as a presenter. Uh, and But there was a black, there were three hosts, two black, one white, but your point is very well taken. Uh, and uh, I, and I want to point something out. Uh, I was at Bowling last night. They had, uh, TVs had hockey on uh, and basketball on. And I just got to tell you this. So hockey is, basketball is predominantly black sport. I think it's 75% uh, of the players are black. Hockey is a predominantly white sport. Now, this is follow where I'm going with this one, Leroy. So I'm, in, in basketball, if you throw a punch, if you do what Will Smith did, you're kicked out of the game and you're suspended probably at least two games. I don't It depends. You know what I'm saying? Like the severity, did he get hurt, this and that, and the other thing. Uh, and it's a anybody who comes to off the bench to aid the fight, get involved, is suspended, kicked out and suspended. Okay. That's basketball. Hockey, I'm watching this game, the predominantly white game. In the middle of the game, a fight breaks out. These dudes, they're like punching each other. Two minutes or five minutes in the penalty box, he's right back in the ice. You see what I'm saying about so stereotypes and how like why do white people get away with it in hockey? And black people don't get away with it. I'm not saying I want fighting, but I'm like, why is it okay in one sport, but another, not in another? Please help me, Leroy Gordon. Go. Oh my God, that you're you're asking the wrong guy. I I truly, um, I I feel like it's it's. Oh wow! Look at them. Like they're fighting. This is rowdy. This is awesome. Uh, this game is now exciting because of this violence. And I feel like that the people watching and enjoy it might still kind of consider those people like lowbrow. Like oh, look at those barbarians. Good enough to entertain us. Then uh, I think about it in in basketball, and uh, certainly uh, if that was happening, we'd be animals. <laughs> be fucking animals uh you know like the hockey people people are like oh they're barbarians but like you know we we can still grab a beer with them and the basketball people fight and it's like oh look at those animals getting after each other can't even uh get it together enough to play a sport how sad you know what i mean like uh that's 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 certainly see um 
some bias there. I don't know how to like put the words on it, but absolutely. I, I think it's uh, one scene. It's it's normal. It's been made part of the game um, and it's been made. Okay. Um, I, I can't even imagine a black hockey player, like fighting a white hockey player, like what that would be like, you know, is that a regular fucking thing is when, uh, you know, if hockey ever gets predominantly black, like, is that a thing where it's like, all right, fighting's done. We're done with it. <laughs> you know? Good point. <laughs> That's true. That's it. No fight. <laughs> you should be done with it anyway, hockey. I'm just saying, I, I don't watch hockey anymore. I'm through with it for a lot of reasons, and uh, we don't even have to go into them, but I'm just through with hockey. But I'm just like, how the hell do they let this get away? We're all, you know, going on and on about uh, Will Smith sma- uh, slapping uh, Chris Rock. All right, so let me ask you this about the joke, the culture of comics making jokes about people. Uh, and roasting, and uh, you've seen your roast, your share of roasts, I'm sure. Uh, joking goes on in wrestling. A lot of joking and trash talking goes on in wrestling. Uh, lines are crossed all the time. And uh, so do you, in your humble opinion, believe that Chris Rock crossed the line uh, with his joke about uh, Jada Pinkett Smith's uh, haircut? Absolutely. Crossed the line with it. Um I don't know their relationship um, between Chris Rock and, you know, Will and Jada Pinkett Smith. Um, like if they are buddy buddy or if they're good friends. Um, yeah, a lot of things come up for me. It was like, well, you know, there's some shit like one of my friends would say and like maybe I want to slap the fuck out of them or like, you know, like we'll get into a like a, a rough little conversation and like, all right, we're still brothers at the end of the day. I don't know if this is the case. I don't know if Chris Rock like was fully informed about uh, Jada Pinkett Smith's like alopecia and that, that whole thing. Um, and if he was, if he had some knowledge of it, um, absolutely not. I feel like, you know, if you're, if you're going to roast somebody, you got to have a, a certain level of knowledge about them. And if you don't have that, you know, you could be poking on some shit that's like poking a bear, you know? Um, and, with what beauty standards are and what hair is, uh, I was about to say to black women, but even to me as, as a black man, like extremely important. One of those things that is uh, very much part of our identities. And uh, there's still progress being made to let us kind of have our hair the way we want it and uh, go where we want, work where we want, and it not be a thing. Um, and to poke fun at uh, something now she has no control over. Even if she like liked to rock that haircut in the past, uh, she now has no control over uh, the hairstyle she wants anymore. Of this thing that is part of what makes her beautiful, and she's beautiful hair cut all the way off or with a bunch of hair. But uh, she now has no control of that anymore, and that is a, a an extremely deep thing for um, you know uh, me as a black man, her as a black woman, all black people, and many many women as a whole. Uh, so in, in this world where, you know, black women are often uh, some of the most downtrodden, not protected, made fun of, um, yeah, had the lowest expectations had of them um, and take something that was really a lot of her power and she's out of control of it now and make fun of it in front of everyone <laughs> possible. It's uh, it's it's in bad taste. If he knew what he was doing. Very bad taste. Even if he didn't know what he was doing, 
I don't know. There, there, you got to know more about a situation. Uh, and I don't know if he had reason to know, but I feel like <laughs> he, he now knows to never do it again, hopefully. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that he, of all people, uh, would not know that since he did a documentary about uh, black women in hair, which it's it's actually a very, I don't know if you ever saw it. It's, I didn't yeah. never have. No. no. Yeah. Chris Rock, Chris Rock uh, is the, the the host of it and uh, the narrator of it, and he's in it. And it's really uh, compelling stuff. Uh, I got to say this. I just I want to make a, a what I say a clarification or whatever. Uh, my wife uh, has been in the haircutting business for longer than my distinguished guest has been uh, alive, so she knows a lot about women and their hair. And uh, most of her clients are white women. And when we were watching it. She was telling me, she goes, you, this is, this is a, it's not, in other words, it's not just black women. It's like women who lose their hair. It's a very upsetting, uh, emotional thing. It's just, it crosses all, uh, ethnic and, uh, borders. And it's like something that, as you were saying, like at the earliest age, women are taught that this part of their beauty and then they have to deal with it. And so my wife you know, has to deal with this, like women who have cancer, uh, for instance, uh, and alopecia as well. You know, and uh, it's a counseling. Thing. It's almost like counseling and therapy that you, you talk, what's the look you want? This is what I can do for you. You know, we can work this through this and we can make you look beautiful again. And this, that, and the other thing. I'm tearing up just thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm feeling that, man. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, anyway, I'm going to compose myself. All right. Uh, so let's talk about cancel culture for a moment. Uh, Leroy, I got to get your thoughts on this. Uh, we talk a lot in the show about this concept of cancel culture, and we talked a lot about it when Dave Chappelle uh, really upset and hurt uh, trans people in this country with his comedy. And so many Dave Chappelle fans were like, yeah, let it go. It's just a comic. A comic can't talk. And this he should be allowed to say what he wants. And this cancel culture has gone too far. Blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And now I'm watching some of the same people go, oh, Chris, you went too far. You know, with insulting a black woman's hair. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why is it okay for Dave Chappelle to upset trans people? You think that's cool? That's just a comic expressing his First Amendment protected right to say what he wants to say? But oh my God, you went too far, Chris. <laughs> help me, Leroy. Help me on this one. Yeah, dude. I, I, I think those people who are like, leave Dave Chappelle alone uh, can totally fuck off. And um, I think Dave Chappelle has some some correction to be done. I think uh, trans rights is very new for most people to wrap their mind around. Um, it's, it's where, I don't know, gay rights was <laughs> when I was a kid, you know, now. Um, and there's a lot of education to be had about these people being able to leave their, live their lives and do it in a way that's safe. And Dave Chappelle absolutely made some remarks that uh, makes it unsafe for them. Um, onto that, Chris Rock, I, this, I, I don't think this is in the same vein of what Chris Rock, uh, of what Dave Chappelle did, not even close. Um, it's a um, joke made in poor, poor taste, a place where he can use some education. I think, uh, you know, he is still more victim in this. Um, I mean, I guess there's multiple victims in this. Jada's a victim of what he said, and then Chris is a victim of what Will did. Um, but uh, there, there is some, I think the answer for all of his real is compassion. Uh, all right, Chris Rock, you said something fucked up. Here's why it's fucked up. And uh, we forgive you as long as you don't say anything fucked up like that again. Like that's, this is not a, a cancel thing 
uh, for Chris Rock and how people could say the same for Chris Rock uh, that they would for Dave Chappelle. They're confused about Dave Chappelle. I don't I, I don't think they're confused about Chris Rock. He, he should say there's a lot of freedom in what he says. But if it is harming someone, there's no that you, you don't cross those lines. So can you make a, a joke about alopecia to, to, about somebody else who has a better feeling about it? Sure, probably. Um, but if you don't know where Jade is standing with this shit, uh, where clearly she's so, you know, in a rough spot with it that her husband even feels it and is like, oh, now I got to go defend my my wife and my honor through my wife being insulted. You know, uh, there's clearly a lot of emotional charge there. Someone's hurt there. Um, and it's not like the the fun. I'm poking fun at you kind of hurt. So um, I think it's an education thing for Chris, uh, not a cancel thing for Chris. Chris. All right. Uh, let's get into Will Smith a little bit. Uh you're um, a big fan of his. I actually am a big. I, uh, the funny thing is, I, I was really happy one because his performance. I don't know if you've seen King Richard yet, but it's he killed it in that role as uh, uh, Richard Williams. So I was really cheering him on. Uh, although I was rooting for anytime Denzel Washington's up for anything, I'm that's my guy. It's like Paul Newman to me. You know, it's uh, Al Pacino, Denzel Washington, Paul Newman. Those are my holy trinity right there so i'm always rooting for them if if i I was i wanted denzel to win it but uh uh talk a little bit about will smith's background what you know about it uh that may have contributed to this moment will smith uh so love the book and recommend it uh i did audiobook and he does an amazing job i I recommend the audiobook i love audiobooks uh and he's he does the reading for it and kills it there too um uh, and he he comes from a home where his father was extremely abusive to his uh, mother specifically, but also to the kids. And I, I remember one night uh, he said that his mother, his father hit his mom so hard that she hit the ground and cracked her her head open. There's just blood everywhere. Um, his little brother's trying to fight the dad. Uh, his little sister like runs and like hides and doesn't talk to him. And Will's just like frozen. And he really set that as a moment in his life where like he always had a feeling that he was a coward. And in that moment, like it really like cemented in him that he is in fact a coward. He's unable to, to protect the people that, um, that he loves. Um, he's never able to do it from his father and I'm sure he's become better at it, you know, and uh, one of his commitments in life, uh, as told in the book was to be, be in a place where he can protect the people that he loves. Um, and as this, this work happens to go, you end up being a fucking asshole to <laughs> when you go on those kind of missions. If you have not done the work, you end up kind of being an asshole, uh, even to the people that you love and are becoming so overbearing that it's not protection, but it's more of like a, a smothering kind of thing. And he certainly had a lot of that in, in his story. Um, so there's, there's trauma around protecting the women in his life. Um, there's trauma around protecting his family and, uh, you know, it's it, it really I, 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 you know, was able to continue reading the book and see that he did a lot of great healing work uh, that probably got him to, you know, a lot of where he is today in the last several years anyway. And uh, the whole thing with uh, Jada having her, uh, you know, when they were open marriage and she had a relationship with such and such and it got out and he had that interview where he's crying all over the place and like totally cool. But everyone like really talking so much shit about him expressing emotion and uh, his wife manipulating him into doing these things or whatever. It's like um, 
just so much going there. Like he had done so much work to maybe like, maybe like close the chapter in his life where it's like, all right, I have to protect, protect, protect. Um, and like came to a different place with it. And then he, you know, gets to this place where he's, you know, become a vulnerable man and sharing his life more than he needs to, but he's certainly, uh, you know, he's in the public eye, he's sharing his life. Um, and the, the backlash says, you're not a man, Will Smith, cause you're crying. You're not a man because you let your wife make you do things or something like that, you know? Um, and I, yes, this, this, this journey that we're on, it will never be perfect. It will never be seamless. We'll never figure all our shit out and then be completely fine for the rest of our lives. Stuff will pop up, you know? And I think this is a case of, you know, uh, a lot of pressure being on to be a man again and, uh, just on such a stage, uh, I, I don't know any of us who would handle it, uh, too much better than he did, you know, and maybe it doesn't come in the form of the slap, but people, you know, will go hit the bottle, shoot up some drugs, <laughs> snort some drugs, whatever it is, have their other ways of coping, um, to let it out. That's, that's also not handling it well, you know? So my biggest thing is like, yo, there, you, you cannot judge um, really anyone in this situation. Uh, was there some physical altercation that needs to be dealt with? Absolutely. Um, and everyone just, you know, operating from some point of hurt. Either trying to do the right thing or like what they thought was the right thing at the, at the time and they're operating from from being hurt. And um, yeah, yeah. I I really feel, feel for Will. Um, I feel for Jada. I, I feel more like, oh, damn, that sucks for you a little bit, Chris, but like not like bad feelings. It's just like, oh, that's a shitty situation. But I kind of feel for everyone. And I think compassion is is the, the thing that's missing from most people's commentary. Have some fucking compassion. Um, don't make this a man thing, woman thing. Um, no more so a little bit of woman thing in terms of what Jada's going through. But don't make it like a man thing, like toxic masculinity, blah, 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 showing it's like, yo. No, I see people who, who are in need of healing, as we all are. So, Well, that was really well put. And, uh, Leroy, we could talk for hours. One thing that we share is the gift of gab. Uh, Leroy Gordon and uh, Ben Jarofsky, we really got the gift of gab. Uh, Leroy, I know you got to go somewhere, so I'll cut it short. You got to hop in that car and get somewhere. Uh, just uh, just tell folks if uh, if they want. They hear what you say and they like what you say and they want to, you know, hire you, whatever, to help them out or uh, just give them some information on how they can contact you. Yes. Uh, uh, Instagram is my main place where I hang out and put out content kind of uh, talking about stuff like this. And that is at Roy Flash Gordon uh, on Instagram. And just uh, come enjoy some content, maybe uh, hook up with me, we'll chit chat and all the good stuff. All right. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, Jim Coogan, our ace attorney, will be with us next. We'll take it a deep dive, a totally different direction about law. Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny Thomas, uh, the insurrection and uh, Donald Trump's insane uh, lawsuit that he filed against Hillary Clinton and much, much more. So stick around it. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back. me as a 
Barry's attorney and good friend of the Ben Jarofsky Show, Jim Coogan. Uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit from uh, any conversation about Will Smith, Chris Rock, the Oscars, the Academy Awards, the slap hurt around the world. I uh, can't. It's very difficult for me, Jim Coogan, to uh, break from a conversation on that topic. I'm utterly. You know how I get, Jim. First of all, welcome back to the show, Jim. Uh, I, I, it's been a while, but at least a month or so. Uh, but you know how I get. With uh, certain topics that just get inside of me and I can't stop talking about them. But I'm going to do my best, uh, Jim Coogan, to leave the Oscars behind and talk law with you. Does that sound like a good idea? We can do our best, uh, although I I suspect there could be some analogies between the two. Um, The inappropriate use of violence, maybe. I don't know. There's there's probably something in there. But, uh, yes, I'm looking forward to it and it's good to be back. And uh, let's see what we can figure out. All right. Well, there's so much to discuss. And uh, I spent a good part of the morning reading the utterly absurd and it's almost laughably absurd uh, lawsuit that Donald Trump has filed against uh, Hillary Clinton, the various Democratic operatives, the Democratic Party. And he threw ABC in there. I don't know if you saw that. ABC got thrown in there, too. So uh, even though that's the perhaps the least significant uh, Donald Trump uh, the legal news out there. We're probably going to talk about that as well. I'm just going to put that uh, sort of like post that up. Uh, let's not leave this show without talking about it. All right, let's start with the obvious. You and I have had uh, long conversations about this. Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and uh, his activist wife, MAGA activist uh, Jenny Thomas. Wow. I do believe that any rational person has got to look at the political uh, career of Ginny Thomas uh, and say, come on, Clarence Thomas, it's time you recuse yourself. This has crossed all kinds of lines. Jim, why don't you start off with a little update on what Ginny Thomas, who Ginny Thomas is and what uh, she's been up to and why that is significant in terms of her husband, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've actually gone through this a little bit recently because the great Jane Mayer of The New Yorker did a long piece about her background, her rise in conservative right-wing politics. And I do mean like the conservative part of right-wing politics. If you're just in the Republican spectrum, she's very far to the right of even that spectrum. Um, And that includes that she eventually became... Uh, familiar with now Supreme Court Justice for the longest of any sitting Supreme Court Justice, Clarence Thomas. Uh, They were together before 1991 when he was appointed by George H.W. Bush. And um, one suspects, although there isn't as much direct uh, evidence of this, but there's, there's certainly, you can draw all the inferences that you want about the connection between her advocacy on behalf of a variety of groups that she's either actually a board member of or affiliated with or just consults with that are advocating for any number of of hard right-wing political positions and her husband's job. One thing that will come up in our discussion today that I have since learned after trying to become more familiar with this uh, political operative, she's, give her credit, she's kept a very low profile with intent to keep a low profile. Um, There are folks who can't help themselves but be out in front of these things and can't help but enjoy the attention. And then there's other folks who are really more about accomplishing whatever whatever they see as their 
political mission and work behind the scenes because in the light of day, especially when here she is married to a Supreme Court justice and so actively involved in so many causes that become uh, cases before the court, uh, it's, it's been in her best interest, at least the way she sees it, to do so quietly and not in the spotlight. Um, but one thing that's come across is that apparently she and Clarence Thomas refer to each other as their mutual best friend. And that's something that came out in one of these notes. And so just a, that's a little bit of a background, but catching it up to where we are presently and why this is relevant today is as the uh, Congressional Committee is investigating the atrocities, I would say, against American democracy that occurred on January 6, 2021, um, they have released, in the course of their request for more information, some of the text messages and communications they got from Mark Meadows. As everyone may recall, Meadows went rose from being a North Carolina congressman to being Trump's final chief of staff as he unsurprisingly rifled through several chiefs of staff during the period of just the four years that he was in the White House. Uh, Meadows, one of the most loyal and loudest and um, willing to engage in all manner of buffoonery on behalf of Mr. Trump and, and trying, to, uh, trying to justify the things that they were doing, which apparently led all the way through Trump losing the 2020 election and then being involved in all these various machinations to try to stop the certification of Joe Biden's electoral college victory uh, leading up to January 6th. So um, now that the committee has gotten some of these, these communications and Meadows refused to give more, they're looking for more, but it's become clear that first, Jenny Thomas, her name started to come up because she had been advocating and sort of, I, I don't know if it was Twitter, whatever it was, some social media where she was voicing support for the, the folks who were out on the ellipse watching Trump's speech and then, you know, marching down towards the Capitol. Uh, but she claimed that she had no direct involvement with, with sending them there or with any of that. And then it turned out that wasn't true. She absolutely had involvement with uh, transporting folks to this, uh, the speeches. But then, of course, she also claimed that she had nothing to do with their further intent to go disrupt the certification by actually storming the Capitol building and creating this violent riot to disrupt and create cover for the machinations that were going on inside the Senate, uh, the chambers where they were actually doing the certification. And now, now that these some of, we don't even have all of them yet, communications have come out between her and Mark Meadows, now it's clear that she was directly advocating with Meadows, coordinating with him, imploring him to do more, demanding that he do more. I mean, you know, the, the whole, gosh, you better keep fighting, that can be seen as you better keep fighting. It's not, <laughs> it's not just a friendly uh, sort of shot in the arm from somebody like Jenny Thomas, or at least I don't, I don't read it that way under these circumstances. But that's where we've come now, uh, and this includes, of course, uh, as I'm sure you're probably going to ask about, the fact that for one of the decisions that actually came before the Supreme Court as to whether or not information had to be turned over, the lone dissenting opinion came from Clarence Thomas. And so, you know, the, the, there certainly can be a gloss put over this to pretend like he didn't know what was happening or that he isn't actually an advocate for what happened on January 6th. But when you, when you throw that fact in there, it's much hard, it really def defeats the, the premise of plausible deniability that somehow he wasn't aware of what his wife was talking about. No, it's a defiance uh, on the part of it of uh, Clarence Thomas and his wife that they're above the law 
and they don't have to abide by the same rules that govern uh, everybody else. Uh, and it's really straining all credibility uh, to say that, it, on one hand, uh, we're best friends, and on the other hand, I have absolutely no idea uh, what my best friend is up to in her day job, which is being a political operative for uh, MAGA. And that's her uh, day and job. It's not like she has some other job and this is just an advocacy thing on the side. This is a full-time, 100% of her time, I'm sure, on the clock and off the clock, is all devoted to right-wing um, assertion of power. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, she is a very powerful uh, force in that world, in the MAGA world, generally, as Jim pointed out, behind the scene. And let's get into the strategy that Trump has uh, been following and why Clarence Thomas's role uh, is key as a Supreme Court justice. Uh, as you pointed out, uh, many appearances on the show, uh, Jim, essentially what Donald Trump does every time he's hit with a subpoena or he or any of his aides or advisors are hit with subpoenas trying to uh, unveil information that he's concealed he claims uh, that uh, executive privilege, or he claims that uh, in some cases the lawyer, they're his lawyers, and you're violating the trust between a lawyer, a confidentiality trust between a lawyer uh, and a client, and he immediately uh, challenges it. And so it goes before the courts as to whether, this is how this stuff drags on for so long, Jim. It, it goes to the courts as to whether Congress has the right or the power to authorize Donald Trump or his aides to testify or turn over evidence. And it invariably, if it goes all the way to the Supremes, and where, guess who? <laughs> we talk about this with Ed Burke and Ann Burke in the state of Illinois. Guess who is sitting? Uh, in this case, it's uh, Clarence Thomas. Eight to one, wasn't it? It was eight to one, uh, the vote to, and he was the only one uh, who said uh, that uh, Donald Trump, that, that this information should remain secret. Please, Jim, explain to me uh, the rules governing spouses and judges and how they do not apply uh, to Clarence Thomas. Help me understand this. Well, this was the subject of one of our last discussions that, uh, and I'm not the only person who believes this, so if, if folks need more Backup. I mean, there's, there's. I think there was recently a letter signed by dozens of academic uh, lawyers, scholars, legal scholars, calling for more ethical standards to apply to Supreme Court justices. It's, you can almost call it a loophole that has existed for the entirety of the Supreme Court's history, that there was just never any explicit mechanism or mandate that they follow the same canons of ethics that apply to every other judge in the country. Um, <laughs> I guess it's because they're created by Article 3 and of the Constitution, and they, as many people would say, well, I don't really need any other rules. I can just govern myself. I mean, that's, that's one of the dangerous things that you hear from any particular profession, whether it's police officers, doctors, or even lawyers, who claim that they, well, you know, we'll just govern ourselves. It's That's not really comforting for those who don't necessarily trust every situation or are suspicious that in some circumstances, um, brethren might cover for other brethren who are among the same profession. Well, here we're talking about an extremely narrow group of just nine folks who, if they are members of the Supreme Court, aren't bound by the same canons that every other judge is bound by. So, what, what they have argued and what Judge Justice Roberts has argued in the past, actually, in speeches that he's given about this topic is, 
we still have our own standards and we can govern ourselves and we will under the appropriate circumstances recuse ourselves from decisions that we should not be participating in well you know this particular decision where the national archives have these records of trump's and they were being requested by the january 6th committee and trump asserts that he that they should not be turning them over based upon executive privilege when he's out of office and by january 6th has also lost an election and furthermore the committee only exists because there was an actual attack in the Capitol, including, you know, fatalities and, and casualties of police officers that appears to have been coordinated with efforts by the executive branch and by the legislative branch, and now possibly <laughs> including the judicial branch. Uh, th but under the circumstances, at least before that decision came out, that was the assertion Trump was making, that the privilege should apply, that they shouldn't have to turn it over. And then the only person who dissents and we're talking about this includes all three of Donald Trump's own appointees and Republican appointed Chief Justice John Roberts, all eight of the other judges, uh, all believe that there was no application of executive privilege and ultimately no question whatsoever that these were germane records that should be turned over to that committee. So, yes, he was the sole dissenter and he, well, obviously he, under these circumstances, as we learn more information, including that, that line about best friend, that was actually in one of the texts to Mark Meadows. Jenny Thomas was texting Meadows saying things like, keep on fighting. I feel heartened by the fact that I've even also had a conversation with my best friend that makes me feel better about all this. That's not a vague reference to a, a female friend that she had tea with that afternoon or some other best friend. That's, that's a reference that people in this Washington circle would know means, hey, hey, by the way, nudge, nudge. I just talked to my husband, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, about this, either implying that they've got some backup at the Supreme Court or implying that he better listen to her because she's got, you know, a, a judge on her or the, one of the biggest judges on her side. So he should have recused himself, didn't. And I'm, I guarantee he'll never offer an explanation for it unless he's impeached or otherwise more things come to light and he finally feels compelled to resign over it. I, I, you know, at this stage, we aren't completely sure what else is going to come of it because some records from Meadows, uh, after he stopped, which is really a strange thing, he's, he's, he began by participating and cooperating and then suddenly decided not to. Uh, that, that, we saw that trend with a lot of the legal problems that a variety of people in Trump's orbit uh, happened throughout the four years of Trump's presidency with the dozens and dozens of indictments of different people in the executive branch or people that were part of his campaign or part of his business. And it's tough. I guess some of them thought they if, they, if we cooperate, we'll get a little bit of leeway here. And then they realized that they shouldn't, or they were scolded by the big guy who started calling him out on social media, calling him a rat or calling him whatever else he does in his um, wannabe mafioso kind of way of, of speaking. Well, I'll go one step further in this. Uh, the most obvious case that popped to mind when, in my mind when you said that was uh, Michael Flynn, who was actually uh, had either uh, already agreed to plead guilty or already pled guilty and then withdrew it. I can't remember which it was. It was and one he changed of the other. lawyers. What's that? Remember, he changed lawyers. We talked about he that on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then ultimately he uh, was pardoned by Trump. So my thought immediately is that Donald Trump uh, one way or another, by hook or crook, lets his aides know that uh, when he was president, he would pardon them. So don't worry about the feds. You're, you're above the feds, which is so twisted and bizarre a thought. 
Uh, <laughs> well, it's about... explicit corruption. It's about as explicit as it gets. And as many as many serious legal scholars pointed out, there is unfettered pardon power for the president. And that probably is a mistake. But it doesn't mean that it was not used corruptly. Just because there are no actual like explicit restrictions in the law that stop him from doing it in a corrupt way, I don't see how that was any less corrupt. It was very obvious in Flynn's case that that's exactly what must have happened. And then we see the pardon. So yeah. <laughs> the rest of it is yeah. happening out in open, right, right out in the open. <laughs> Yeah, no, we see the pardon, uh, and uh, now Michael Flynn is getting involved in Illinois politics. It's as though <laughs> there's no consequence whatsoever for what he did and what Trump did uh, in MAGA's world. All right, uh, as the context of all of this uh, that we're talking about, Mark Meadows' emails and texts and uh, Ginny Thomas's emails and texts of Mark Meadows and uh, the congressional investigators uh, seeking more information into what Trump knew and when he knew it regarding uh, January 6th. It's headline uh, from today's, uh, well, it's, it's, I'm reading it from the Tribune, but it was also in the New York Times and the Sun-Times. Judge, Trump actions likely criminal. And this is, I, this is how um, hardened we are, uh, Jim, to what's going on. This judge made this declaration uh, in the in the context of the loss of the the congressional invest uh, investigation into January six, and it's sort of buried on the back pages. I mean, there's the war in Ukraine, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock, other important news out there. I'm sort of smiling about the Will Smith one, but anyway, um, Judge Tr uh, Colon Trump actions likely criminal, and I'll just read you uh, this section. Judge David Carter of the Central District of California. The illegality of the plan was obvious. Our nation was founded on the peaceful transition of power epitomized by George Washington laying down his sword to make way for democratic elections. Ignoring this history, President Trump vigorously campaigned for the vice president to single-handedly determine the results of the 2020 election. That's a powerful statement from a federal judge uh, regarding the former president that the entire Republican Party, with the exception of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, essentially, is trying to ignore. And this is the context. Please, this is the context in which matters are going before the Supreme Court, where one of the sitting justices is married and best friends with a confederate, if you will, of Donald Trump in his efforts to steal the election. Jim, this is like a staggering moment uh, in American democracy. I thought I'd seen it all with Watergate, but I think we've gone beyond Watergate here. Uh, and certainly with the connection between the perpetrators and the judges who have uh, over, oversee the process. Is that how you see it? Well, it's interesting when you compare it to Watergate because that was one of the things that I guess either intentionally or unintentionally the right-wing forces in this country have completely divested themselves of since the late 1970s is the concept of shame. I don't know if because, because uh, or, or duty to the country over duty to party and self. Richard Nixon had an enormous number of flaws as a human being, but I do actually think that he thought that the things he did, and I, I wasn't around to watch it with my own eyes like you were, but 
My impression is that he genuinely thought he was doing things that were right for the country to fight communism, to you know promote capitalism, to, to promote courage and, and rock-ribbed republicanism. But with the threat of being impeached, he walked away from the office. I mean, that... <laughs> I guess if you're trying to find the, per- the embodiment of the perfect candidate to be the, uh, the, other opposite, the opposite end of the spectrum as a Republican, you'd, you'd pick Donald Trump. He's completely incapable of shame. Inconsistency is, is like a speed. It's not even a speed bump for the guy. It's like smooth road. Uh, he, I think he prefers to be inconsistent for some bizarre reason. But if you look at any, any, co- any topic that he's ever talked about, it's pretty evident. So under these circumstances right now, 2020 leading into 2022, we're at a point where there is no more shame. So that that potential off-ramp for where this could go by somebody just resigning or giving up is gone. Because as Judge Carter also said in this decision, which is it's uncommon for a judge to go to this, to, to almost be advocating beyond the, the scope of the case that he was directly, that he has in front of him, which is, again, just to re- reiterate, that was the, the case here is about whether John Eastman has to turn over records to January 6th. So he's fighting that, that uh, subpoena that he's gotten. But his words, Judge Carter goes on and says, if the country does not commit to investigating and pursuing accountability for those responsible, the court fears January 6th will repeat itself. Dr. Eastman and President Trump launched a, cam- launched a campaign to overturn a de- democratic election, an action unprecedented in American history. And this is a federal judge, and it, it's not, you know, Ben, if <laughs> if it weren't for all these facts, you and I would be wearing tinfoil hats while having this conversation. It sounded like a couple of conspiratorial nuts, uh, you know, like watching X-Files back in 1992 or something like that. Like, this would just sound insane that there's that the conspiracy to undermine the the viability of the entire electoral process included not just the White House, but many co-conspirators with the White House reached all the way into the legislative branch as the news about Ted Cruz becomes more crystallized over the past couple of days with a whole Washington Post feature about that yesterday. And this, again, like we, like I said a few minutes ago, all three branches of government. Are you kidding me? It's It sounds crazy, except it's transparently right in front of us. And I don't know if it's because it's so far, like it, people just can't wrap, wrap their heads around the fact that this could actually have happened. But go back and watch the video. I mean, I you were doing your show live and Monroe was Monroe Anderson was on there telling you it was happening. I don't remember if you were, I think you were just, you couldn't listen to your show on YouTube at the time, but I was watching it on my computer here at work, seeing what was happening in real time. Like that actually happened. And that was just the the front end of this whole thing. And the rest of these facts are uncontrovertible. Like they're just, we know that they happened. And as you know, you, you presume innocence when it's a criminal charge, but at the same time, if all these folks are denying their involvement and refusing to turn over documents that otherwise would be normally discoverable by an investigative committee like this, it sure smells bad. And I, I just, I don't believe for a second that all of these other records that Eastman has, that Meadows has, that they're going to exonerate them. I really doubt it. Well, uh, the uh, issue of whether Eastman, John Eastman, is the uh, legal advisor to Donald Trump, uh, I, I, I got to figure everybody who's listening to this conversation uh, probably knows who John Eastman is, but just in case. Uh, and uh, he's the one who came up with the strategy uh, in which uh, 
they d- decided that uh, Vice President Pence uh, could overrule the vote and declare Donald Trump the winner by uh, throwing out certain uh, electoral votes. And uh, so interesting strategy. And Mike Pence himself had come to the conclusion that he didn't have that authority and he wasn't going to do it. Uh, so even Mike Pence has his limits. So Eastman's now fighting and he's claiming executive privilege. I mean, excuse me, he's, he's, he's uh, claiming that uh, there's a confidentiality protection that protects him uh, as Donald Trump's lawyer. This is really, this is like some mobbed up stuff, Jim. As uh, Donald Trump's lawyer uh, from having to turn it over. Uh, Love to get your thoughts. I did not go to law school. You did. Uh, so help me out here. Uh, we've had this conversation in the past as well. Donald Trump from time to time has argued that his lawyers, who are his confederates uh, in these various schemes, uh, do not have to uh, uh, turn over documents or even testify before investigators because they have this confidentiality protection. Uh, so deal with that as an issue. Uh, do you? Is there any kernel of truth uh, to it, in your humble opinion? Well, look, for all of the benefits, and they are manifest, of the powers of the attorney-client privilege to allow folks to get legal counsel and not have that information be publicized or known to a, another party in the same case or other folks outside of that case, for all the merits of it, there is no limit on the way that male, male actors will abuse the notion of attorney-client privilege, uh, which, of course, is the reason why they have such a thing as the crime-fraud exception to attorney-client privilege. It's, it's something where, you know, it's, it's, it's a direct response to using lawyers to either convey messages to co-conspirators or to actually be one of your co-conspirators and then pretend as if those conversations can't be disclosed and, and also cannot be um, part of the conspiracy itself simply by virtue of the fact that the other person you were talking to was a lawyer or that what they were giving you was ostensibly legal counsel. Um, so it's, it's, it certainly, it's happened plenty of, especially, it's, I think one of the most common places where this has been an issue is mafia prosecution because RICO cases, those kind of organized criminal activities where there's many actors working towards some common purpose are places where they would employ lawyers to do all those things, be messengers. Uh, I mean, geez, we, we went through this with Michael Cohen. That was, that was basically Michael Cohen's job for Trump. And, and his pattern of operating his Trump enterprises was often mirrored the way that criminal enterprises are constructed, including the use of lawyers like, like Cohen, who has described himself and admitted that he was basically the heavy, the thug, but who also would be the person to deliver messages that then maybe they could try to shield those messages and those communications from disclosure. The exception that you cannot conspire with an attorney in the furtherance of a crime is exactly what they cited here as one of the reasons why this, these communications are not protected. Not to mention the actual Eastern memo is bonkers. It's not legally defensible. And I, I should also mention that this story about uh, Ted Cruz in the past couple of days was actually a reminder that Cruz's plan was actually much more devious and sounded a lot more like something that could be legal. He was trying to monkey around with adding more time for some sort of an audit back at the states, and therefore that might lead to states like Arizona or Georgia uh, throwing out their own electoral votes because those legislatures are controlled by Republicans. 
Um, that even, I think it was actually even the, the judge who Eastman and Cruz used to clerk for 25, 27 years ago was the one who they quoted in this Washington Post article saying, Cruz's plan, it sounded more like it might be legal and therefore was more dangerous because it might even have enough of a of the, the impression that it could be legally true. Eastman's is just nuts. It's just not true. Nobody's ever thought that the vice president presiding over the certification of the electoral college vote had the power to decide which were valid and which weren't. It's very similar to the presumptions that folks had about the power of the chief justice overseeing impeachment proceedings, that they could, that they were going to supposed to make substantive rulings. Now, there might be more play with something like that. Judge Rob, Justice Roberts chose not to act that way when he was overseeing both of the Trump impeachments. But either way, there's nothing in the Electoral College Act that empowers the vice president to actually make rulings about the validity of electoral college votes. And yet, as was one of the other communications that's in these in this cache of all these different conspiratorial emails and text messages, Eastman is imploring Vice President Pence's uh, chief of staff on January 6th by like 10 o'clock in the morning or something like that, as I think they were you know, breaking windows on one end of the Capitol, you still have the power to stop this. Make your, your boss has got to do something about this, as if that was really true. But uh, so I guess that's another way of commenting on the validity of the legal communications, that they were also really not legal advice. It's just, it's just nonsense. It's twisting the law for something that uh, isn't there. So either way, the crime fraud exemption would be at least one reason why there's no reason why these were protected. And that was the judge's finding. He, I mean, he's explicitly saying that Eastman launched this effort with the president, meaning they were co-conspirators. Couldn't really be more clear than that. Yeah. And uh, so I'd like to point out that, um, uh, repeat again, first of all, let's point this out, the, the allegation of, of cheating uh, that propelled supposedly Trump and uh, Eastman and Ted Cruz uh, to seek uh, to demand that Mike Pence uh, throw out the election results and declare Donald Trump the winner. It's just beyond irony. Mark Meadows and his wife have been uh, accused of uh, uh, not having residence in the state they voted. I don't know if you saw that, uh, Jim. And it's like, wait, wait a minute. You guys wanted to throw out the whole election because of vote fraud, and now you <laughs> allegedly, I throw allegedly in, accused of vote fraud. I'm just like, I'm, th there's no shame. I can't accentuate that enough. Ben, uh, the there's been so much made. violence done to the notion of irony uh, yes. over, the past, <laughs> over the entire odyssey of the last president's administration. It's, you can't, it's just being, I don't even know what to say anymore. Those, those instances, things like that, when they come up, you, you don't even really, there's nothing to say. It's just, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> beyond anything. I think your point about shame is is the one I'm going to take away from this. All right, uh, so let's get down to the the Republican strategy, and I talk about this a lot with Monroe Anderson, and I know he's going to have a lot to say about this tomorrow. It basically, run out the clock, and uh, there are only two Republican Congress people uh, participating in what really should be a bipartisan investigation. And if you want to have faith in the, the longevity of American democracy, it would be a declaration from both parties that they're committed to uh, investigating these allegations. Uh, and it doesn't matter who's running Congress. But instead, it's pretty obvious, Jim, 
uh, that the Republicans are hoping that a victory uh, in November, which gives them control of Congress, both the House and the Senate, or just the House in this case, uh, will enable them to kill this investigation. And there goes the, um, I don't know who will be pursuing, uh, demanding that the uh, Meadows, et cetera, and so forth, turn over, uh, and Eastman turn over um, their documents once the Republicans take charge. And so that's sort of the, the threat. That's the ticking clock uh, that's hovering above us all on this. And it all could be moot, and they could bury this thing, uh, even though a judge says, quote, Trump actions likely criminal. That's pretty scary uh, in and of itself, uh, that politically that's how it's playing out. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, it's been, in one sense, you, you keep in mind that it's barely even 15 months since January 6th. This is last year, but uh, these are short cycles. So the next election that, as you're pointing out, every single House member is up for re-election every two years. So you could have any, any, any mixture. It could either remain a very, very slight, as it is presently, Democratic majority, uh, or they could lose it, or they could get crushed, and they could be down 20 or 30 seats and have nothing close to the majority that they would need. But there's no question, I think, in any observer's mind at this stage that if that's what happens, if Republicans take back control of the House of Representatives, that when that group is sworn in around January 3rd or 4th in 2023, that they will immediately disband the committee. It'll, that'll be the end of it. Adam Kinzinger won't even be there anymore. Liz Cheney probably will, although there, I know that there's uh, a couple of Trump-backed folks that are trying to run against her in the Republican primary, presumably, as it has been for, an ex for I don't know, forever maybe, the Republican primary will decide who the, the sole representative is from Wyoming. But um, I, I, can't, I can't imagine that there would be any other fate if Congress, if the uh, House of Representatives flips. And this goes to the other... Uh, part of Judge Carter's Im implication or imploring, as well as all the members of the January 6th committee who were speaking about this just yesterday, basically imploring the Justice Department that they need to act on these things sooner rather than later. There's a, there's a whole long list of folks that they could be charging with things at this stage. The, when, when Merrick Garland first accepted his appointment as Attorney General, he spoke about publicly that he would not, you know, shy away from taking serious action and holding, folk, holding holding actors accountable regardless of their title or their rank or how powerful they might be. Everybody who would like to see justice done is waiting for him to act on those uh, comments because at the end of the day, as you point out, it, it's, it's not, look, I, I hope I'm wrong that American democracy isn't already dying a slow death. When you can't even get more than two members of the opposing party to voluntarily be a part of an investigation into a very obvious thing that really happened, either because some of those members of the party are co-conspirators and you know don't want to investigate themselves, or they just don't care, or they were cheering you along as, as uh, just fans. But even the ones who just don't care, the fact that they wouldn't recognize how serious this is... Um, and you have, what do you have to threaten them with? Well, hey, what if a Democrat did this? I don't know why that would be necessary. Isn't it bad enough that anybody would? Because a democracy, look, the key fundamental thing about any representative democracy is that the people who are part of it have to be a part of it. 
and you all have to collectively believe that it exists. Constitution is just a piece of paper, or it's words on a piece of paper that nobody really reads very often, but you could look it up on the internet if you really felt like it. The rule of law is more is nothing more than people believing that it should happen. That sometimes, of course, if you refuse to cooperate, you'll get handcuffs put on you and be at the end. At, you know, somebody has to arrest you at the with force using weapons or guns or, or multiple officers. But beyond that, the rest of us go about our days acting within the scope of the law because we just think it's a good idea to have a cohesive society. If that breaks down, that's the end of it. It's nothing more than an idea. And actors like Donald Trump, I mean, look, friends of mine you know, get frustrated with the, with the return that, that we're constantly still talking about him. I am frustrated by it too. But my concern is that somebody like that does not care what they destroy in self-service and in self-aggrandizement and in self-enrichment. They just don't care. They don't care what they trample on. They don't care who they trample on. And they don't care about that, the, that these ideas are fragile ideas. He's no respect for it. That's what offends me. I mean, I could care less if he was off doing television shows and never, never monkeyed around with American politics and didn't rise to that office. But now he's, in, now he's like some kind of catalyst to, to amplify all the worst impulses of right-wing American politics. And here we are. Absolutely. Listen, in all due respect to your friends, I have to say this. You, you can't overlook Donald Trump. Uh, he's perhaps the most popular Republican in the Republican primary, in the P Republican Party. He probably would be the nominee uh, if, if he runs. And here, even in the state of Illinois, uh, which is a blue state, every Republican candidate for governor is seeking Donald Trump's endorsement. Uh, I just joked earlier, I didn't mention the name, Gary Rabine, who is a, re a relatively obscure candidate for governor uh, in the Republican primary, was ecstatic that he got the endorsement of Michael Flynn. With it, The hope was that this means I'll get Trump's endorsement. So to pretend that Donald Trump is not a significant figure, the man that a judge said acted like a criminal is the most sought-after endorsement in Illinois politics. I Jim, I don't. If if you just don't want to talk about Donald Trump, you're like just sort of. I hate to say it, but you're complicit in his coup. Well, you, here, you follow what I'm saying? You want to talk about endorsements? Look what happened to Mo Brooks in the past week. Yes. And speaking of the the malfeasance and the malevolence of Donald Trump, apparently he's still employing Brooks as of last fall to just magically overthrow Joe Biden's position as the president of the United States, as if that is even a thing. He's still demanding that it happens. It's still happening. No, and, and, you know, you can laugh at it because it's an impossibility and it's preposterous. But I, I don't know. Would, if somehow uh, Republicans took control of both chambers of, of Congress, would they s somehow do something to let that happen? I mean, they would obviously just cripple a, a two years of a Biden presidency from 23 to 24. But I don't know what else they would try to do at this point, And I don't trust it because of everything else that they've been doing. And, and I speak of Mo Brooks, the Alabama congressman who wants to be a senator from Alabama. He comes out publicly and says, Biden is the president and there's nothing else that we can do about it. And what immediately happens? Every, every knucklehead from Alabama who wants to run for the Republican ticket flies to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring and take pictures because of exactly what you just said. He's clearly still the most important and powerful force in the Republican Party. There's no question about that. I mean, otherwise, why in goodness name would Gary Rabine care what Michael Flynn thinks? <laughs> an indicted, 
you know, God knows exactly what the guy actually did. I mean, this is, yeah. Ben, this goes back to the very first time I ever appeared on your program when you were on that radio station that I won't mention for, for, <laughs> for, for the protection of the I forget the, the name listeners. of it, too. And Dennis but, isn't here today to help that us. That was so the reason I, I, I was supposed to come on the show. We were going to talk about workers' compensation or something like that. And what happens? John, Donald Trump fired Jim Comey like two hours before I was supposed to come to the studio. Why? Because he wouldn't let the whole that whole thing about Flynn go. It's all, it all, it's all like, this has all been one story from the very start. And the reason why there's only one story and it's all the same story is, is because it's in a corrupt abuse of power and it has been from the very beginning. I mean, it, it's, this is not an accident. And it's not an accident. And the fact that Flynn would only still be a viable force of any kind is because he was, he's not in prison, number one, because he was pardoned. But number two, that pardon means he's got this special endorsement from the king. Special endorsement for the wow, what a memory, by the way. Uh, it was like an audition that poor Jim Coogan. All right, just you're coming on. You're gonna have to talk about this, whether you know anything. The guy passed the audition. Here is five years later. We're still talking about the. Jim, intersection what do you know between... about special counsels? And what do you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you know about special counsel appointments? I don't know. Yeah. I'll look it up. I'll look it up. Man, the guy's a quick study. Uh, all right. Uh, so you mentioned laugh laughable. It, and um, so in addition to being the subject of an investigation that a judge has deemed likely criminal, okay, uh, his behavior is likely criminal, Donald Trump is still launching bizarre lawsuits uh, as, to me, they're forms of projection where he's projecting onto others his behavior. Uh, and so in this case, he filed a suit uh, against Hillary Clinton, and I want to close by talking about this, uh, Jim, because this, I, I, I'm not quite sure, uh, beyond absurd, uh, the lawsuit itself, and I'm very curious, and, and by the way, let's all give a special shout-out to Jim Coogan. He actually read the lawsuit. Okay, He doesn't get paid for these appearances. Later. That's above and beyond the call of duty, reading Wait this minute, lawsuit. Wait a minute, don't get paid for these appearances? Now you're coming? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Wait, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I misspoke. The check's in the mail. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so all right. Uh, I guess explain what the accusations Trump is making uh, about Hillary Clinton's behavior in the 2016, okay? The Republicans want you to get over what happened on January 6th, but they're still talking about something that didn't happen in 2016. So what are the exact allegations he's making and what do you think his ultimate uh, purpose for launching this lawsuit uh, is? So take it away, Jim. You're going to force me to do this, huh? I, yes. So listen, I did try to, I, I won't pretend like I read every page of it. I think it's 108 pages long. But I did read a bunch of the factual allegations and some of the identification of who the parties are and then scrolled through to see what kind of counts were alleged. And um, it's really, it's really a piece of work. So... Ultimately, you have all, basically all of the popular villains of right-wing television programming over the past four years are all named here. Obviously, Hillary Clinton is a defendant. Some of her aides, like Robbie Mook, are defendants. John Podesta is a defendant. Um, but it goes beyond that. They also name media outlets as somehow co-conspirators in this thing. Ultimately, the first few allegations, the first few counts, so, so when people, either you hear about a criminal or a civil lawsuit, criminal indictments, they have counts. They're kind of like, 
I'm indicting this guy, and then there's 20 different things I think he did wrong in the course of this, and they're all sort of different, and they allege individual things. Same thing is true in a civil lawsuit. You can have allegations of negligence, but also willful and wanton conduct if you think you can't necessarily prove both, and you just want to make sure you cover your bases at the beginning. So this thing has got maybe 20 counts, something like that, alleging federal or breaches of federal RICO statutes for the first few counts, essentially saying that there was a, a variety of, there's different combinations of all the defendants that they allege here, um, alleging that they all conspired to uh, malign and defame Donald Trump, that they conspired to steal trade secrets from his companies, that they conspired to steal the election, I think was part of sort of how one of them is framed. But it's, look, um, I don't know how strong any of the actual allegations are. I'll let the judge rule on whether this thing even is a viable uh, cause of action or any of them are causes of action. It's very fantastical. If you read through it, it reads as if it was written by a press person, like a press release from Donald Trump's press operation or the, or the Republican National Committee. Uh, there's a lot of strong language in there about nefariousness and malevolence and how they can... One of the lines was really clever, that these actors were conspiring to destroy Donald Trump's life, which is interesting because obviously they didn't succeed since he not only became president, but is still basking in the afterglow despite being impeached twice and still has quite a bit of popularity among a specific segment of the American population. By the way, I don't know if you saw this, but he also hit a hole-in-one the other day, allegedly. He's, uh, he's allegedly still, he's still playing a lot of golf, <laughs> and it was a very. If you read, even yeah, sorry, I read the thing. It was like some kind of press release, and and even it's like it contradicts itself within the span of eight words. <laughs> it's, it's the same old. By thing the way, I I told or tangent with a tangent. I've actually read portions of Rick Riley's book about golf, mm. which I'm not. I don't know why, because I'm not a golf. I'm more a Rick Riley fan. He's a sports writer. Anyway, right. talks about. Donald Trump, golfing with Donald Trump, maybe the biggest cheater he's ever golfed with. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So no, I, just, you know, uh, <laughs> just keep that in mind. Uh, so, anyway, go back, go back to your, uh, uh, your thoughts. I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no, that's okay. I mean, it's, it's hard to, it, it's hard to even speak about it coherently because I, it does not appear to me to be a very coherent lawsuit. Uh, it talks about how all these things affect interstate commerce and that's why it's in federal court. And it's just, um, Ultimately, I can't, we, I think we actually texted, we did text about this a little bit yesterday because in reviewing it, I was still trying to figure out for myself, what's the purpose of this? And I honestly still can't tell you for sure. Projection was a very common and repeated activity throughout Trump's years in the White House. He would constantly project and accuse other people of doing whatever it was that he was actually doing or about to do, or had recently done, and people didn't even know about it yet. So that's certainly one thing. I mean, it could be some kind of a distraction for all the things that are going around surrounding January 6th. It's a pretty, in my opinion, it's a pretty desperate attempt at a distraction because I can't really imagine what the response was from all these different defendants beyond laughter, but they will presumably have to retain attorneys to do something. Oh, that's right. It also includes the law firm of Perkins Coie, who is the, is the national and international law firm that worked for the DNC and worked for Hillary Clinton. It also includes Mark Elias as a defendant who's been an advocate for uh, against gerrymandering and the manipulation of people's ability to vote in the states. And I'm sure there's, it's not an accident that he's included as a defendant because 
if you recall, his group was one of the groups that was constantly defending all these all the bonkers lawsuits that were filed after the 2020 election in Pennsylvania, in federal courts all over the country. And I think there was one in Wisconsin. There was definitely one in Arizona um, and constantly won. All of the, even the the, uh, the Michigan one, these preposterous Kraken lawsuits that were being filed that, oh, by the way, many of those lawyers were actually chastised by the, the district judge in, in Michigan. They actually recently certified that they completed uh, continuing legal education. They were actually not only, they had, they had manipulated the law so offensively to that judge that the judge ordered that they go take CLE courses and certify that they that they learned about the Constitution and how the law works. I'm not making that up. That is not me maligning anybody. That's actually happened to Sidney Powell and some of the other lawyers that were part of that uh, cra- those Kraken lawsuits. So Elias, I-, I think he was undefeated. It was you know like 50 to one or 100 to one or whatever in every s- silly lawsuit that they filed about access and about everything else. So I'm sure he's still seen as a villain in that world, and of course he's a is is named in the, the lawsuit as well. So it's 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 basically the greatest hits every. Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson, you know, diatribe for the last four years under Trump or five years now of villains that they don't like who did something mean to Donald Trump are all included in this lawsuit. Yeah. And uh, I have two thoughts about uh, uh, the strategy the uh, defendants uh, should respond with and get your uh, close with this. Uh, On one hand, you got to Obviously, they hire. They like you said, they hire lawyers and they try to get it dismissed. But part of me says, "All right, you filed the suit. Let's get let's start the discovery process right now. Uh, we, our lawyer wants to depose you tomorrow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, so Donald Trump really, by filing lawsuit, throws away his rights to claim executive privilege, uh, to claim any kind of protection." Uh, from questions under oath because he's the one who initiated a lawsuit. You can't fi- sue somebody and they go, well, you can't, you can't defend yourself. <laughs> At least not yet. If Donald Trump takes over again, he may throw that out. So what's your, uh, your thoughts as a lawyer? How should the defendants uh, respond in your opinion? Well, the, one reason it may never reach the stage of discovery where Trump would be obligated as the plaintiff, he's the plaintiff, to testify and, and answer questions about facts that he may later allege at trial is I would imagine that the first step is still going to be motions to dismiss this thing for failure to state a real cause of action. It happens a lot. I mean, that's that's the thing that civil defense attorneys do first is try to figure out whether the complaint even states something that is consistent with the law and has a, has a, a requested remedy, whatever they're asking for, in this case, money damages, that is actually tied to whatever they're alleging that the plaintiff or that the defendants did. So I suspect that's still where they're going to start. But if Trump wants to pursue this and he does continue with this, the, as you identify, the weird part, the weird feature to all this would be that as the plaintiff, you have to testify. Okay, you can't just dodge giving a deposition. Civil cases, not like criminal cases where you're not obligated to testify, where you might implicate yourself under the Fifth Amendment. In a civil case, you you are the plaintiff. If nothing else, he's a witness to to the his own damages. They're claiming twenty four million dollars. Well, oddly, it says at least twenty four million dollars, and then they ask for uh, triple damages. They call them treble damages because lawyers don't like to just use regular words. 
uh, for violations of, I can't remember which federal law that they're claiming that they also violated. And therefore, it's not just $24 million. You multiply that by three and they want attorney's fees. But he would be a witness to what the heck are you, what's your basis for the claim of damages here? And not only that, but then if you're trying to say that all of, basically everything that happened from 2015 when Hillary Clinton became a, a candidate, because the allegations go back to before she was even the nominee, because they're throwing out things from the Podesta emails about, or the DNC, whether they were promoting Hillary as a candidate over Bernie Sanders, et cetera. I don't know why. I have no idea what that has to do with Donald Trump. But all of that is now included in the scope of this lawsuit. So his their defense attorneys would be entitled to ask him about any of these things that he has knowledge about, and he can't shirk the response. I mean, it's different when he's the defendant in a lawsuit and he wants to play games, pretend like he doesn't remember things, pretend like he can't read, do all these other little little games that he plays at depositions, which I've, I've watched some of this because they put it out on YouTube over the years when they were videotaped. Um, you, can, you can't really get away with that when you're the plaintiff because you're the one who has to succeed in this cause of action. And if you're, if you're playing cat and mouse, the judge might dismiss your case for that reason because you're just not participating in good faith and discovery. So it is a strange thing in the sense that I, I still don't, because of that potential risk, and I do think it's a risk, him ever testifying under oath, I think is an enormous risk to somebody who has that kind of aversion to the truth. Um, the fact that they would op open themselves up to that is an odd thing to me, but that's why I, I got to assume that there's some other ulterior motive to this. Hmm. Well, um, the the obvious one is uh, the one you pointed out, I think, in a text to me. Get publicity now uh, and uh, eventually just drop the case. I mean, he could always drop the case uh, when it's no, more, no longer useful to him. Uh, but uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, uh, I guess it's a fantasy, that one of the uh, defendants immediately says, all right, tomorrow, let's get, let's get this baby going. Uh, I'll see you at my lawyer's office. All right, Jim, we didn't even get to Ketanji Brown-Jackson, but we've run out of time. There's so much legal news. Uh, and particularly, I'll repeat this, judge, quote, Trump actions likely criminal. Wow. And that's not even on the front page, ladies and gentlemen. We... <laughs> That speaks a lot about where we are as a country right now, Jim. Uh, the most powerful man in the Republican Party. Uh, Trump actions likely criminal. It's not even on the front page. Jim Coogan, thank you so much. Five years you've been doing this, taking time from your busy day uh, to talk to me. I can't thank you enough. Thank you very much, Jim. It's my pleasure, Ben. It's good to do this. Thanks for having me on. All right. That's the great uh, Jim Coogan. Uh, I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend. No, not Dennis. He's off today uh, down in his beloved Alton. But DJ Nate uh, sitting in for him. And uh, back home at Lane Tech, where he's a proud graduate. They call him DJ Nate. <laughs> Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader